Well, hello. It is great to be seated back here at Northview Community Church in the studio where I spent so much time over the last number of years uh, speaking to this camera, thinking about all your faces, and uh, wanting to share God's word with you. I have had a great seven months in Chicago. Some of you are looking at me right now saying, who's this dude? I used to be, for those of you who don't know, I used to be the lead pastor here at Northview and I left last summer to go to Chicago to serve in a, as the lead teaching pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And uh, it's been great. The Lord's done some really cool things there. Uh, if I get a chance to see you, I would love to sit down and chat with you, or at least stand there and chat with you and tell you some of the cool things that are happening there. But I've been really excited to hear about all the cool things that are happening here. And it is a huge privilege for me to come back and to share God's word with you. Um, my task was to uh, preach on Philippians chapter two, verses one through 11. And we are gonna talk about that, but I, I, I couldn't help myself. I had to kind of put it into a wider framework and give you a few other things that I, I, I would love to urge you as my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. So before we do the, any of that, I, I, I wanna tell you, there's this passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter three. Um, where uh, Paul is, is describing how he is longing to see the Thessalonian church. And he's tried, in fact, to get to them. He left them and then he's tried to get back to them. And he says that the, Satan wouldn't let me. I don't, I don't know what that means. It sounds a little bit odd. I think he probably means that, um, that Satan had prohibited him in the sense that there were certain circumstances or people that stood in the way for him to actually be able to get back to the Thessalonians. But he was worried about them because he'd left the church in, in uh, a situation that they were gonna have to face some challenges and every church faces challenges. And so after he had planted the church and he established leaders there, he had left and hadn't heard a whole lot from them. And he had wondered if, if perhaps it was all in vain, his labor was all in vain. And so he's longing to see them. Uh, finally, he gets a report from Timothy, his his young protege. He sent Timothy to them to find out what's happening. Timothy returns, and here's, here's how it, it reads in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. You can hear Paul's heart there like, uh, we've got this message back from Timothy and we've heard that you guys are doing well. In fact, that you're going from strength to strength and your faith is uh, flourishing instead of diminishing, and we just thank God for that. And so he's, it, it's that kind of a relief passage. And you can probably tell why somebody who used to be the pastor of a church returns to that church to preach a sermon seven months later has a particular uh, interest in that text. It's because I feel the same way. Uh, I have prayed repeatedly for Northview Community Church. Uh, I dearly love this church. Uh, I gave my heart and soul to this place for 15 years and I am, I'm thankful to all the things that happened here by God's grace and help. 
But then when you leave, you're, you're not sure what's going to happen and how things are going to go. But I've just been so blessed to hear all the great things that you guys have planned, the good stuff that is going on. Um, I'm excited for the future for this church and for the leadership that he's put here. So um, please hear that from my heart that I, I have longed to come and see you. And like Paul, I have also wanted to come and what he calls supply what is lacking in your faith. What he means by that is basically, look, I want to come along and I want to try to encourage you with some things uh, that might help spur on your faith. So um, I actually have three of them. Of course I do. I have three things, three reminders that I want to give you that I hope will supply what's lacking in your faith that will help stir you forward in love and faithfulness to Jesus, okay? So three things from three passages. Here they are. Uh, my reminders, divide not, buckle up, and keep going. Divide not, buckle up, Keep going. Here's the first of them. Divide not. So like I said, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, were the, was the passage that I was actually given by Mark to, to preach to you today. So I want to talk a little bit about, about that text. Um, here's how it reads, Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul's uh, essentially saying at this point that you do have these things, right? He, he, he's not asking, well, if and maybe you don't have. He's saying these are things that are true about you as Christians and that every Christian has uh, encouragement from being united with Christ. There's not one Christian who has that and another who does not. We all have encouragement from being united to Christ. We all have comfort from his love. We all have common sharing in the spirit. There's no some, one person who has more of the Holy Spirit than somebody else. If any tender, tenderness and compassion, yes, all of us have experienced the compassion of Jesus, have felt the tenderness of his care. We all have this in common. This is our common viewpoint and common experience as Christian people. No matter who you are, where you come from. He says, if you had all this, then make my joy complete, verse 2. By being like-minded. If you have had the same experience, then have the same mind. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So you see the point, right? If, if you share the same spirit, and you do, then in one spirit, be of one mind. You have unity in the experience you have with God, therefore have unity in the way that you express your love for your brothers and sisters. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? Don't, don't try to point to yourself. Don't try to get you know, accolades for yourself. Don't try to have everybody come and ha humble before you. Rather, go and humble yourself before them. That, that's, that's his point. The question that you have to kind of ask when you come to any passage like this, though, is like, why is it that the Apostle Paul is, um, why is he writing this to this particular church? Like, what's going on in the background? And what's interesting is the Philippian church is a really cool church. Paul, Paul actually, as you probably have studied already, he was really thankful for these guys. This letter pretty much is, a, is a, a missionary thank you letter for a financial gift that they had given. 
But as part of that missionary thank you letter, he tells them, man, I'm so thankful for your partnership in the gospel, all you guys. I'm so thankful for this money that you sent to me when I was in dire need. No other church really wanted to partner with me, but you guys were the ones who, who, who reached out and made sure that I had what I needed. You're an amazing church. Everything's really going well with the church. But he also wanted to point out some challenges that they may be facing that could actually ruin everything. If they, if they were let go without being checked. One of those challenges he actually points out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Here's what he says. He said, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of one, sorry, to be of the same mind in the Lord. See that language? Same as what we're reading in our uh, Philippians 2 text. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion... Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So something's going on with Iodia and Syntyche. We don't know what, what it is. Uh, apparently, they don't agree on something. They're not of the same mind on something. And their disagreement is known to Paul and probably known to lots of other people in the church. And it's causing difficulty because, you know, clearly they're people who are contending with Paul to decide for the Gospels. So they're important women in the, in, in the life of the church, but they got some issue that the two of them can't agree on. And so Paul is part of this letter. I really think he, he addresses theologically that disunity in Philippians 2. It's almost like he's saying, look, Yodian and Syntyche, and all who might follow in their way and disagree, you need to understand that we have a common spirit. We have a common experience with God. Nobody has more of the Holy Spirit. Nobody has more of God than any other Christian. So if we have that same experience, then we should have the same commitment to each other. Our unity in Christ should drive our unity with each other. Outwardly, we should get along. We should get along. How? How do you get along? Well, he, he tells you, verse uh, 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So if you, if, if you want to overcome your uh, friction, fractions, factions, that's the right word, factions, not fractions, one half, three quarters. Um, if you want to deal with your factions, with each other, then uh, you need to look to Jesus Christ and his attitude, okay? And your relationships with one another have the same mindset, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus is up there in heavenly bliss with the Father, Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and there they are, eternally existing as three in one. Three friends, the center of the universe, they don't need anything, they're self-sufficient. They create this world, and the world, of course, goes into disarray and uh, heartache. The, Jesus does not have to come and save those who are in difficulty. He can look off from a distance and say, man, it's tough, tough for you guys. <laughs> it must be, must be hard to be down there and, and, and to deal with all of your sin and, and you know, misconduct and the ruining of the world, and now you're going to have to deal with the consequences of all that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Didn't consider sitting up in heaven and saying, I'm going to stay here because it's more comfortable. Rather, he made himself nothing. 
by taking the very nature of a servant. That word actually nothing is a big theological word that's called kenosis, kanao is the Greek word. And people have tried to load it with all sorts of importance. But the passage itself really does explain what is being talked about there. He made himself nothing. How? Well, by taking the very nature of a servant, by becoming human. So God, Jesus sets aside his comfort with the Godhead and he descends, he comes down and he limits, essentially he limits himself in some ways in order to be a servant to us. He was made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further, I would say, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. It's not just that Jesus came from his heavenly abode to earth and be born in a manger. It's that Jesus, who came from his heavenly bone, born in a manger, then lives a life, and he ends up, ends up going to the cross for the people he came for. Consider the humility in that. Like, he doesn't need, he doesn't need to come. He's God of very God. He can demand that you come to him. He can say, look, I'm the honored king. You come to me, but he doesn't. He becomes a servant. He becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because he becomes obedient to death on the cross and because he comes all this distance, God exalts him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So this one who humbled himself actually ends up being exalted. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So you see, I mean, you see his point here. He's saying, look, uh, Yodia, Sintike, people who have those, those viewpoints that they do. You know, you guys have uh, factions and friction with each other. The way you overcome it is you have the attitude or mindset of Jesus Christ, who did not consider that you needed to come and humble yourself before him, but he instead initiated the, by humbling himself before us. You know, when I read, when I read this passage, um, I, am, I, I think uh, of a few experiences, some that I've read about and others that I've experienced in my own life, but um, uh, one of them is the prodigal son story. I think you guys, many, many people will know in Luke 15, there's a story about the son whose dad's rich and he says to his dad, I want part of my inheritance now, which is essentially in those times saying, I basically wish you were dead. Just give me the money. Your life doesn't matter that much. Just give me the money. So he takes the money, he goes off, and he spends it in what the, what the Bible says, wild living. You can fill in the blanks of what wild living is. It's probably the same thing as it is today. Um, eventually, he runs out of the money, though. And, of course, the people who've come around him to join in the wild living, when the money's gone, they leave too. And he's left with nothing. In fact, he's, as a Jewish man, the worst thing you can do is to basically, you, 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 pigs are unclean, and nobody eats pig. Nobody eats pork. So to eat the things that the pork eats is to be even lower than the person who eats pork. And here's this guy in the story. He's in a pig pen, basically. He's eating out of the slop that the pigs eat. In fact, he's probably eating the leftovers that the pigs leave. Like he's, he's reached the very lowest point. And he comes to his realization while he's there eating the pig slop. I don't know, maybe mid-bite with a pea pot or something. He realizes, I don't know, what, what have I done? What have I done? I've wasted everything. My whole life has been ruined. And so he makes this plan. He thinks, you know what? Even the servants in my dad's house are treated better than this. So I'll go back. I'll be a slave. 
I don't deserve to be called a son anymore, of course. I told my dad I wished he was dead. And so he decides that he's going to you know, head back. He starts the long journey home. When he gets a little ways off from, from the house, um, we realize in the story that the father has been scanning the horizon for his son repeatedly, daily maybe, waiting for him to come home. And when the father sees the son at a distance, the craziest thing happens. See, in the culture of those days, the way it worked is that if you were the high honored master of a family and a great estate, you would demand that those, that son would come to you, bow down before you. I mean, big, they wore these big robes, right? They're not good for running. <laughs> you know, uh, distinguished men don't run to their prodigal sons. That's just not the way it worked in those days. The prodigal sons come down and prostrate themselves before the great master and, and plead for forgiveness that they might not even get, right? But in this story, the father runs. I mean, seriously, he picks up his robes and he starts running like a little girl and he heads right to his, right to his son. That's, a, that's, that's the image that I think that is being played on here. That, that um, Jesus did not need to come. He did not need to set aside his uh, rights to divine actions. He didn't need to set aside his uh, community, that the warm community they had with the Father and the Holy Spirit and his heavenly abode. He didn't need to do any of that. He could have just stayed there in comfort and let everybody else suffer, but he doesn't out of love. He goes he goes, and he humbles himself before we, have to, before we do the humbling. Um, when I was planning this last year, thinking about um, going to Chicago, uh, I was in two minds about it. I love Northview, and I wanted to stay here for the rest of my days. I really did, but I, all I kept thinking is the church that I, that I went to was in really difficult uh, state. You know, and you're trying to figure out in moments like that, is this what the Lord has for us? Is this the way that we should go? You know, what should the future hold for us? And so I was um, thinking about it. And the thing that kept coming back to mind is this Philippians 2 passage. Over and over again, I kept thinking, you know, what does Jesus do in situations when he is in a comfortable, when he was in a comfortable situation, but then he saw the great need of people far away? And in order to go serve that great need, he would have to give up a whole lot of things. Comfort, community. And the answer is he went. And I couldn't get over that. Because I thought, look, as a follower of Jesus, how is it that I cannot have the same mindset as him? I, I, when it comes to this sort of thing, I can't just look at these people in grave need and turn away. That's not the way of Christ. Yes, I'm gonna, we're going to be saying goodbye to some of our dearest friends of our lives. Yes, we're going to be saying goodbye to British Columbia, where we love to live. We're gonna be saying bye to the mountains and the water and the cycling and the hiking and, and, and you and so many things that we dearly loved about the place. But you know, love compels you. Jesus compels you. That's what it means to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Christians don't wait for others to come humbly. Rather, we humble ourselves in pursuit of peace with one another. 
So look, this applies to marriages and to friendships. There are probably people who are listening to me right now who have, who, who have an opinion and an approach to things and they are demanding their spouse or their friend to come to them. They're demanding that that person come forward to them. And I'm just telling you as a, as a Christian who follows in the way of Jesus, you, you need to recognize the only reason you have salvation and life and comfort from his love and encouragement from the spirit and all the things that are meant, the only thing you have, the only reason you have that is because Jesus was willing to do the very thing you're not willing to do. So to be a Christian is to walk in his way and the only way to overcome the friction and faction that you have is by humbling yourself. In your friendships, in your marriages. But I gotta tell you, uh, this day and age here, especially in uh, 2022 in Canada, when I'm reading a passage like this, talking about divisions in churches and talking about how you ought to give of yourself for the sake of others, every single person who's listening to me right now is connecting in their minds, they're just, the word that's ringing is COVID, 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 COVID. Because if there is a division that is existing in the church right now, it is around that. It is around COVID. There are camps that have been created in the church because of our different viewpoints, not on COVID, but on how it should be handled and how people should treat you know, masks and mask mandates and, and, and vaccine mandates and all of those things. So listen, I, I don't like talking about COVID any more than you want to hear about it, but I've always been willing to go to the place where we are all just obviously thinking, so I want to address the elephant in the room, and here's the thing. I just want to give you uh, several facts about COVID, facts that in light of this passage, right? Fact number one, every one of us, every Christian hates this. There's not somebody who's sitting around thinking to themselves, you know, this is a really good idea. I remember the office episode where Dwight Schrute is walking in a crowd, down a crowded uh, roadway and he says to Jim, he says, um, there's too many people in this world. We need a new plague. There, there are no Dwight Schrutes among us. There, there are none. There, there is no Thanos among us who wants to snap their fingers and see a whole bunch of people just go away. We don't. We love people. We want to see our friends and families safe. Nobody likes that death is in the world, right? We long for the day that it's not anymore. So nobody likes this. Fact number two, we all think that those who are in harm's way should be especially cared for. I've not met a Christian yet, no matter what viewpoint they have on this, who thinks that, you know, what we should do is sacrifice a whole bunch of people for this other people. Nobody wants to do that. The question and the debate that we have is like, Okay, but what's the best way to go forward with that? Some people say, well, the best way is for, you know, a great Barrington Declaration. Other people say, no, the best way is to, you know, do lockdowns, whatever. There are different viewpoints on how it is that we're supposed to solve the thing that we agree about. We want to care for people. Nobody likes it. We all think that those who are in harm's way should be especially cared for. Third, we all have a strong to very strong opinion on how this should be handled. There are very few people at this point, two years in, who are changing their minds about how they believe this should be handled. In fact, we are so staunch in this that we have formed, quite honestly, really two clear sides on it. There's very few in the middle who are like, yeah, I don't know about COVID. Yes, you do. Everybody's got a hard opinion about it. We share it with all of our friends. And fourth, here's where we need to think as Christians. 
It will pass. But we will spend eternity with one another. COVID will end. But our relationship with one another? It's not going to. So the factions that we're creating right now are not in light of the truth of our unity in Christ. They're not. They're not. We're getting mad at each other over an issue that will fade away at some point, and, and there will be other issues, but our commitment to each other as Christians, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. I told us just sorry, just a little while ago that I got mad about, you know, I was mad at a guy, a Christian friend um, who, you know, he frustrated, he's another leader, he frustrated me, and I had a friend who was listening to me complain about him, and he said, you know, Jeff, uh, I bet you're going to be living right next door to that guy in, in, the, in the new earth. <laughs> I was like, okay, oh, yeah, probably, <laughs> I probably will. But that knowledge changed a whole lot for me. It made me think, oh my goodness, if that's the case, then perhaps the way that I approach this should be different. Perhaps my attitude, my mindset should be affected by the fact that we're brothers in Christ. And the Jesus who went a great distance humbling himself for us gives us a pattern that we can follow when it comes to the friction we have with one another. Finally, my last fact Regardless of our agreements with the facts that I've already mentioned, our demanding that others do things our way is ripping our churches apart. I am pleading with you as a brother in Christ, as uh, if, you, if you've ever had any confidence in my reading of the Bible and teaching it to you, I am pleading with you to be at peace to, to strive for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, even over these things that we hold so very dear, even over our strong opinions. I was at a conference here in BC in, in October, and I, it was with a bunch of pastors, and I couldn't believe the number of pastors who I talked to privately who were speaking to me about how they don't know if they're going to be able to make it through this, this ministry year. There were 30 pastors, 40 pastors, 50 pastors there, and I must have had 10 to 15 conversations privately with them of different pastors saying, I don't think I can make it. And the reason is because they don't, they're not epidemiologists, they're not public health experts, they're also not, they're also not you know, public policy experts, and they're not politicians, and nobody ever trained us in seminary on what, uh, what uh, you know, a, a, a coronavirus was to begin with. And we don't know who to believe any more than you do. There's 15 different opinions about all the different stuff. And we do have our opinions. Every one of us does. But as a pastor, you get it from every side. I've had meetings for one minute with somebody who says, I'm leaving the church because you're not being hard enough. And I've had a meeting with somebody else who says, I'm leaving the church because you're being too hard. Really? We're fighting about this? We're fighting about this. I know you care deeply. I care deeply about what happens in our world. I do, I do. But you and I are going to be with each other forever and ever and ever. And when this ends, when this ends, the hope we ought to have with each other is that the way we've acted in the middle of it, we can sit next to each other and say, brother, sister, I love you. 
And the only way that's gonna happen is if you and I have the mindset of Jesus Christ here, where we go humbly instead of expecting them to come humbly. So divide not, that was the first point. I got three, okay? So that, I've done my duty now. I've, I've, I've covered the passage and said, I think, uh, given some application to what it is that I was asked to do. So these are just extras. Uh, the second thing I, I want to uh, remind you is buckle up. So 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13 are really interesting to me. Uh, here's, here's the passage. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You saw the first, first line there, right? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Um, I, I think that in the Western world, we have experienced over the last 30, 40 years a huge shift. And here's he heard huge shift in the way that the wider society and culture views the Christian church. Okay, so here's kind of the rubric or the, the, the pattern that I've seen develop. Years ago, maybe back in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, whatever, there, there, were, there were people in the society who approached the church with affirmation. If you told somebody that you were a Christian in 1984, they would say, well, that's really good for you. I mean, religion does a lot of really good things for the society. And I, yeah, I totally, I grew up in church and I, I would love to be more moral too, but I like partying too much. Somebody would say that to you. But they, they honored you. They actually respected the fact that you were a Christian. When I was in high school, people respected the fact that I was a Christian. But somewhere, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, something shifted. And in the West, we've gone from you know, affirmation to indifference. And by indifference, I mean they're not being positive about it, but if you said to somebody, oh, I'm a Christian and I go to church and I'm actively involved in serving Jesus and do you want to know about him? They would be like, eh. I mean, okay, you know, you do you. you what's good for you is great. I mean, I'm, I'm really into, you know, <clears throat> scuba diving or whatever it is, and that gives me joy, but if, you know, if religion gives you joy, it's fine, it's no big deal. So affirmation to indifference, but now, most of us in the West are like, I don't think it's indifference anymore. I actually think it's opposition. And yeah, it, it is. We've moved to a point where to be a Christian and to hold maybe a biblical sexual ethic or maybe to say that Jesus is the only way or to believe in something like hell. They're like, you're hateful. You're wicked. You guys are actually the problem with the world. We need to actually make sure that you can't speak in public and you have to keep those viewpoints very private. And if you ever come out with them in any place, we're going to cancel you. Affirmation to indifference to opposition. And here's the thing. Most of us who've grown through that think that this is weird, this opposition. But I'm telling you, in the history of the church, what's weird is affirmation. There have been very few times in the history of the world where Christians have been applauded. True believers have been applauded. In fact, most places in the world today, if you're a true, genuine Christian, you're not applauded, you're opposed. And that's the way we've learned how to be here. So look, we shouldn't be surprised at that. It's just our naivete, our, our lack of knowledge of history and lack of knowledge of the rest of the world and the Christian plight in the rest of the world that's led us to think that this is weird, but it's not, it's not. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. I mean, listen, Paul himself, 
He, say, he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. He said, you, however, know all about my teaching. He's speaking to his protege, Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and suffering. Timothy, you know all the things that I've been through and all the things that I've faced. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, persecutions I endured. Yet, the Lord has rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Opposition is normal. It's what happens when you're being faithful to Jesus. So I used to referee men's league of basketball. When I was like 21, 22, something like that, I, I refereed men's league basketball. I have never been hated so much in my life as I was as a men's league basketball referee. Admittedly, I was a very poor referee. I, I just, I called things usually because the person was being mouthy with me and not because they had broken any rules. So I, anyway, I got out of it really quickly. But I remember the, fir- the time I did, the first time I did it, I remember calling a few fouls on these different guys and they would lose their minds at me. And then I called fouls on the other team and they'd lose their minds at me. And they were chirping me and yelling at me and you know, speaking about my mother in ways that they shouldn't have. And it was terrible. And I remember going back home after that game, and I remember sitting on the curb outside of, uh, outside of my house. And I was thinking to myself, I feel so assaulted at this moment. I feel so opposed. What, what is going on? Like I went into refereeing thinking that that wouldn't happen. Now I gotta tell you, I was naive. Nobody should ever go into refereeing assuming that, nobody, that everyone's gonna like your calls. That's just not the nature of refereeing. Nobody likes being corrected and no one wants to lose the game. The nature of refereeing basketball is that you are frequently opposed by the people you call the fouls on. Similarly, the nature of serving Jesus Christ is that you will be opposed by people in the society who don't like what you're saying, who don't agree with you. That, so to go into a refereeing situation and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening, we would say, what are you thinking? I mean, you're kind of foolish to think that that's not what happens when you referee. Right, similarly, that's what you shouldn't, you shouldn't think that way when you get into, into, into being a Christian. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, it's normal. It's normal. So what should we do? You know, don't be surprised by it, says Peter. Then, but did you notice he said that in the next phrase, he said, but rejoice. Rejoice, basically, because you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, right? Rejoice that you may be overjoyed when uh, his glory is revealed. In other words, the fact that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ means that it's a sign that you're united to him. And if you're united with him in suffering, you're also going to be united with him in glory. In other words, you're on the right path, man. This is a sign when everybody doesn't like you and they start criticizing you for your particular beliefs about Jesus and the way that you act in the community because it's so different than everybody else. They, they, you're on the right path if they don't like you. You're being faithful because that's what happens with faithful, with faithful people. Look, if I, if I, uh, I used to ride, um, 
Well, I don't like riding hills. That's why I like living in Illinois anymore. I don't like riding by hills on my bike. Um, but here, there are so many hills. And so when I used to, when I used to ride the hills, uh, I, used to, I used to avoid them a lot. But look, if, if um, you came to me and you asked me, hey, how do I get to uh, Ledgeview, which is you know golf course kind of up on the side of the mountain here? Uh, I would say, well, you know, and you're going from the from the border of the Sumas Flats there or whatever. And you got so I'd say, well, you have to go down this road, Watcom, but then you need to know that Watcom will start going up this big tall hill. You need to keep going up that hill. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna go to the top of the hill, you're gonna go down, you're gonna have to go back up, and then you take a right and you're gonna have to go up again. Okay, so this the, the fact that you are going up the hills and they are hard is evidence that you're on the right path. If you find that you're only going flatlands, you're not getting near Ledgeview at all. So when you start riding and you get halfway up the hill and you're just dying and thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, the pain, the difficulty, I, I must not be on the right way. No, the pain and the difficulty of the hill is a sign that you're actually, you're actually going the right way because that's the nature of being at Ledgeview. And it's the only way you get to Ledgeview is going up hills. Right, the only way you're gonna to get to the kingdom of God is by going up the hills, man. <laughs> so you're like, well, I'm on a hill. Hey, congratulations, you're, in unified, you're unified with Christ. And those who are unified in his suffering will be unified in his glory. So in this weird way, it's like a positive thing. It's a positive thing that we are gonna face difficulty. And guys, we are facing difficulty, you know that. The government passes laws. Our friends and neighbors think we're crazy. We get stink eye all the time, and we don't like it. Nobody likes it, I don't like it. But the fact that it's happening, and the fact that you continue down a faithful path instead of just pulling back because you don't want anyone to think badly of you, that's actually a sign, that's suffering, that hill. That's a sign that you're, you're continuing. And we must continue, which is my last point, right? So, so to, to review, divide not, buckle up, and then finally keep going. So Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 22, here's what, um, here's what Paul says when he gets back and he visits some people that he, um, when he comes back and he visits some people that he had done ministry with. Here's the way the story goes anyway. He says, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowd over. So Paul had done ministry and the crowd was on his side, but then these Jews came along and they turned the crowd against him. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. You gotta think about that for a minute. Paul's probably, his body is pretty much lifeless. Being stoned is, then was not the same as being stoned now. Anyway, they took actual stones and they threw them at you. And so he is literally, literally looking dead. No, people don't think that he's alive. They drag him outside the city and they're gonna leave him there so the vultures come and eat him. But the disciples, but after the disciples had gathered around him, you know, you can see him poking them with his stick. Is he dead? Is he dead? Somebody, is he breathing? Somebody check for a pulse. After they surrounded, gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city, as you do, you know? Where are those guys who just stoned me? Let's go back and visit them again. <laughs> I mean, he's a bit crazy, Paul. God bless him. The next day, though, he, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. These are the places where he had been nearly stoned to death. And when he returned there, okay, in verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. 
When he comes back, that's the way that Luke describes what he's doing. He's strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So he preaches the gospel to these folks. They receive the gospel. They go through some difficulty, and Paul comes back, and his word to those people is, keep going, keep going. You're on the right path. Keep going. You're facing difficulty. That's a sign that you're on, in fact, the right path. But remain true to the faith, because everybody's going to be, everybody has to go through these difficulties to enter the kingdom of God. Guys, I think one of the main things I focused on when I was a pastor among you was the fact that uh, we are not there yet. We talk about being saved, and yes, we are. The Bible talks about us being saved, but most of the salvation that the Bible talks about is about is what we call end-weighted. So when the Bible uses image, images, it's usually an image like um, salvation is like a race that you start and you keep running, and it's only the one who crosses the finish line that gets the prize. If you quit at the 23rd mile of the marathon, you, you didn't succeed. You might have had a good run, but it was all for naught. Uh, they use images like the harvest. Uh, farmer sows some seed, it starts to grow up, but then it just, it's destroyed halfway through. No, no farmer in the world is celebrating at that moment. Nobody's thinking, well, that was really a lot of good work. You know, They're thinking, what a waste. I did all this work, I did all this stuff, and it was all in vain. You see, you see the language, though. It's all end-weighted. The harvest comes at the end. The, the, the prize comes at the end of the race. And this is Paul's attitude towards salvation. Yes, you're, you're saved. There's evidences that you're saved, right? You know, facing suffering, unity with Christ, all of these things. There's evidences that you're saved. But keep going. If you stop on the way to Ledgeview, you don't reach Ledgeview. You didn't get the joy of playing the golf. Similarly, if you stop on the way to the kingdom of God, you don't have the kingdom of God. Man, scripture is really clear on this. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord had promised to those who love him. They'll receive the crown the reward which is life. It's not some sort of extra thing. It's, it is life. It's the crown of life. You get eternal life by continuing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. This is the end of Paul's life. Kind of his final words to his protege, Timothy. He says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, the crown which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul's even attitude is like, look, I, I've, I've completed it. Paul has, has language that he uses in other places talking about that I want to benefit for the, I want the benefits of the gospel while preaching it so that even though I've been preaching it, I don't, I don't, I haven't sacrificed, you know, and, and, and believed in vain myself. You need to keep going. So he says, so my work isn't in vain. Because it only counts if you finish. 
It only counts if you finish. Keep going. We haven't finished yet. And only those who finish receive the price. Oh, look, let me be just really realistic with you toward the end here. How do you do that? Like, just be practical. How do you do that? I've got two ways as we finish on how it is that you can continue in the faith in the present world, okay? So here's, here's the first. Um, you and I need to order our lives in such a way that faith in Christ will flourish and not diminish. We need to order our lives in such a way so that faith in Christ will flourish and not diminish. My son Micah has spent a year um, training for baseball. He's had a really great experience. But man, if you're going to train to play a, if you're going to train to play a, a, pro, a professional sport, the level of commitment is very different. It involves everything. <laughs> So he's had to eat differently. He's put on like 15 pounds of muscle because he's had to eat these lean meats and it's a chore for him. Sometimes he's sitting there and he's like, I can't eat anymore. And uh, he, but he has to, he keeps going. I've never had that problem myself. I, I usually just eat right along with him, but mu- what I've gained is not actually muscle. So he just keeps eating. He's gotta go on a program. He's gotta go and he's gotta throw a certain time every week, a scheduled, strict schedule. He lifts on a Monday and a Tuesday, lifts weights and certain late. Some days are, are a heavy day on legs with certain exercises and he's gotta do arm care. He's gotta take care of his massage out his right arm. He's gotta do these special, and if he doesn't do any, if he doesn't do this stuff, it's just all for naught. Because that's the kind, of, he wants to reach a goal. <laughs> he wants to be drafted into the major leagues. He wants to play major league baseball. And this is the way you order your life in order to, in order to ach- arrive at that destination. Right. Right, Christian. So you wonder why it is that pastors like me say, hey, go to church. Uh, because you should order your life in such a way that faith in Christ flourishes and doesn't diminish. Going to church is going to help that a lot. It's like going to the gym with the baseball. You've got to be in the word of God because this is your arm care, man. Right? It's your food. Is that your meal? Well, I, I'm full. Yet, yeah, you know what? I know it feels like a chore sometimes, but get, get in there. The benefits will be enormous. Spend time around other Christian people. Right? You get, co- you get coaching when you're around other Christian people so that you can achieve the goal, so that you can get better at the things that you don't, you don't understand. You see, that we, we pray so that we can engage with our God and remind ourselves of what his world is and seek to develop a relationship. You see all of this, right? All of this stuff that we tell people to do is not to be done just because that's what Christians do. It's to be done because they're God's means of keeping you in the faith. Commit yourself to order your life in such a way that faith in Christ flourishes but doesn't diminish. That's how you can reach the end. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Um, in the midst of the pain, and we all have it, in the midst of that hill, <laughs> you got to focus on the prize. Your mind should be regularly focusing on the prize. It will motivate you. I know that because if you told me, all right, uh, Jeff, what you, you should, I want you to go climb that hill on Whatcom Road on your bike. Okay. So I start out. And I do it, and uh, I start getting really tired. And you come along in your car, and you say to me, Jeff, um, 
If you keep going and get to the top and get to, I'll give you $2 million. Like if you don't quit at all, you just keep pedaling. Or you can get to the top uh, and, you know, have the, the pride of knowing that you accomplished it. You can point to yourself and saying, I climbed the Whatcom Road Hill. Um, I'm going to say that I'm going to be motivated more by, by the money than, than, than the pride. And here's why. The amount we're willing to persevere amidst trial depends on the significance of the reward. I'll say it again. The, the amount we are willing to persevere amidst trial depends on the significance of the reward. And so if the reward is great, you'll keep going in the midst of difficulty no matter how hard it gets. But if it's minimal, you're like, eh, it's kind of give up. Guys, listen, this is why you got to focus in your mind. you got to focus in your mind about what the prize is. Where are you headed? What's Ledgeview like? And the answer, the answer to that question is, is in the scripture. Let me just give you two descriptions of what is in store for Christians. The obvious one in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7, when all things are said and done, then I saw, says John, then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Sea was the symbol of chaos. There's no longer any chaos and meaninglessness. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Think about the feeling that you had on the day that you got married, the joy when you saw your bride, gentlemen, coming down that aisle. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. There will no longer be barriers between us and God. He will be there, right there in the midst of us. The great prize and reward for all that we've suffered. God himself, the greatest thing in all the universe will be our experience moment by moment by moment by moment. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. Everything bad is become undone. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Listen, I, just in your mind, think to yourself about the moment that you've had the greatest peace in your life. It might have been, I don't know, when you were sailing with your friends on that given day, or you, maybe it was a special day you spent with your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend before you got married. Maybe it was a time when you were just together with your family and you had the greatest day, Disneyland, or whatever it is that was the best thing that you ever did. You felt at home and warm and peaceful and everything. Now take that feeling and multiply it like, multiply it by like 100 million. And that's what you have every moment, every second. That's the experience. And it never gets old. It's always, it's always as new as it was the second before. God himself will be your God. That's a prize. That's better than led you. Man, it's better than led you. Also, though, uh, notice um, 
In Matthew 25, you get this response from the master of the parable of the talents. Remember, there's a master goes away. He leaves some money to his different servants. One of them has five million and doubles his money. Uh, one has two million, doubles the money. One has one million, buries it in the ground. Master returns. And to the five million guy and the two million guy who have doubled their money, this is what he does. His master replied, Matthew 25, 21, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful to few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I was listening to Tim Keller talk about this just recently, and he, he said, look, I want you to take the greatest moment of your life, the greatest affirmation you've ever had when you felt like you were given all the credit or affirmation that you, that you needed in order to feel like you were whole. We all long for some sort of affirmation and someone to think that we are great. That's why we suffer so many things is because we want that moment. I want you to take that moment that you experienced that in your life. Everyone's had one. And I want you to multiply it by 100 million times. And I want you to think about that moment where the master himself looks you in the eye, puts his hands on your shoulders and says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Surprise, man. Martin Luther said, Martin Luther said, I have two days in my calendar. This day and that day. I, fo I focus on this day. I focus on how it is that I can know Christ in this day. I focus on how it is I can serve him in this day. But all along, I think about that day because that's the day we live for. That moment where all will be made new where the prize is ours finally and that God himself will be our God. Man, that's worth climbing for, right? That's worth keep going for, right? That's worth giving your rights up for, for your neighbor and friend, right? Right. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful so much for your grace and uh, I have so many things I want to share with my friends who I dearly love, and I pray, Father, that the words that I've shared here would have some sort of impact. Father, the ones that are not of you, would you just take them away and send them into the abyss, but the ones, Father, that have your spirit motivating them and that are true to these texts that the Spirit himself wrote. Father, I pray, I pray you'd take those and implant them in our hearts, Father, not, and, and make us not just hearers of the word, but doers. So bear fruit in our lives, Father as we long for that day, as we long for that day, in Jesus' name, amen.